Welcome to the Mindfulness Series, where we bring you a variety of episodes to keep your mindful of the lessons we learn about ourselves in this podcast. Today's uncut episode features Professor Catherine Sheeta, a current professor at Cornell University who brings neuroscience and psychology to parallel her discoveries in various animals with humans. This is your host, Day One, and you're listening to the Mindfulness Series. All right, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, sure thing. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Do you think you could quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Dr. Katie Cheetah. I uh, work on mouse love songs. Um, I say that sort of facetiously. Um, to give a little bit more detail, I work on uh, the neural circuits that, that underlie the production of vocalizations. So I started my own lab at Cornell University in the psychology department. Um, as of this January, it's been kind of a weird time to start a lab. <laughs> Or just prior to a pandemic. Let's see, originally I'm from Iowa. Um, I was at Duke University for a really long time after my undergrad and yeah, I just moved to Ithaca, New York last December. Yeah, so what would you say is your biggest area of study? Um, where have you studied? Where do you work? And any major accomplishments you really want to mention before we start our questions? Yeah, sure. I actually got my start in science um, working with songbirds. It was kind of random. Uh, I was an undergraduate uh, taking a neuroscience class and we read this paper about um, the neural systems, the neural circuits for vocal learning and songbirds and it just sucked me in. I thought it was so cool that birds have these dedicated brain regions uh, for, for, for learning and producing their songs and they also have these neat behavioral parallels to how people learn, their, um, learn speech as infants and children. So, so my background is really in, in vocal learning and, and neural circuits for vocalization. So I did my PhD work uh, also in songbird vocal learning um, in terms of what we accomplished there. Um, I, in collaboration with a postdoctoral fellow in the lab at the time, um, we, we developed um, two-photon imaging of uh, single neurons in, in the songbird, and that was really the first time that that had been done, and we were looking at um, these tiny little structures on the neurons called dendritic spines, which are these morphological um, sites of synaptic input. And we were basically tracking how those change. So they either, they go away, new ones grow, or they perhaps change in size. Um, and you can use that as a correlate to understand how the inputs onto a given cell are kind of changing. And so in our case, we were looking at how that happened over the course of um, song learning and um, auditory experiences that are important for the bird to learn its song. Um, so after that, I had kind of a brief detour. Um, another kind of big passion of mine in addition to vocalization is just motor control. So I worked for a, lot, a while with fruit flies and I studied um, the descending circuits for uh, the control of leg movements in the fruit fly. Uh, and, and I love that work. Um, and I also really miss working on social behavior and vocalization in particular. Um, and you know, one really great thing about the fly though is that it has uh, this massive toolkit uh, in terms of just genetic tools that you can use to access neural circuits to kind of probe and measure their function. Um, so in my more recent work, I've switched um, back into a vertebrate system. And so I work with mice now, um, studying the neural circuits for the control of vocalization in the mouse. Yeah, that was great. I think you actually answered my next, uh, next question, which was tell me, tell me how you got to your interest but I think that was perfect. Um, so, I mean, you've already done like a quick overview of like your lab and research that you've done, um, but do you think uh, there's anything else that you really wanna like 
talk about like your ultrasonic courtship vocalizations maybe talk a little bit more about that just in general perspective yeah sure yeah so i can tell you a little bit about kind of you know the the work that i accomplished just prior to starting my own lab and sort of where um, we're headed and, and what sort of the big picture questions are that I'm interested in, the things that keep me up at night thinking. Um, so prior to my postdoctoral work, um, a lot was known about the neural circuits for the control of vocalization. Um, there was a lot of work in particular in primates done in the 70s. And, and in short, we had identified a number of brain regions that were known to be important for the control of vocalization. Um, but it was sort of this black box type of organization. So there's like this region, which projects to this region, which projects to this region. And that was sort of, if you can envision like these black boxes connecting to one another, this di diagrammatic sort of, you know, understanding. That's sort of where we were. Um, and, and there wasn't really any detailed understanding of, of which cell types within these areas were important for vocal control. Um, so for my postdoctoral work, um, I really wanted to tackle these questions and start jumping into the neural circuits at a point that I thought was really going to be like, you know, just a, a site within the brain that was absolutely essential for vocalization. Um, so we jumped in at the um, a part of the midbrain called the periaqueductal gray. Um, this area, like, like really every part of the brain is incredibly heterogeneous. It contributes to many different behaviors, many different functions. Um, and so at the time that I started my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, another uh, postdoc in the lab had developed this um, really uh, nifty activity dependent labeling strategy whereby without going into the details, you're basically able to express viruses and transgenes and neurons that were recently active during a behavior of interest. So we basically leveraged this tool um, to label neurons in this part of the midbrain that were active during vocalization. Um, and in short, we identified neurons that appear to act as command neurons for the production of um, vocalizations. And so, as I said, um, we're doing this in mice. So I can give you a little bit of background also just about the behavior in mice. So uh, they uh, produce ultrasonic vocalizations. A lot of people don't know this, and it's for an obvious reason. We can't hear them. These vocalizations aren't within the human hearing range, and you need... Um, specialized um, recording equipment to detect them. Um, but they produce these vocalizations, they're very acoustically complex, um, and they tend to produce them predominantly in social situations. Um, and so one uh, really uh, kind of, uh, you know, scenario in which it's very easy to elicit these vocalizations is to put a male mouse in with a new female social partner. And as that male is trying to court the female, he'll produce these vocalizations during periods of um, social interaction. So. So basically that, that was the type of vocalization that we were studying. And so we, we um, started out in male mice and we use this activity dependent tagging to express uh, viruses and neurons in the midbrain that were active um, in, in the male mouse during the production of courtship vocalizations. And then what we found is that later on, um, if we expressed uh, channel rhodopsin, which is a protein, it's a light gated ion channel. So if you shine light onto these neurons, you can um, elicit activity. Um, so if we took a male mouse, um, put him in a novel chamber all by himself, no social partner, no social stimuli. So this is a scenario in which a male mouse would typically vocalize very little or not at all. Um, if we artificially activate these neurons, we could, uh, we could get that mouse to produce USBs, uh, ultrasonic vocalizations on command. So the activity of these neurons um, is sufficient to elicit ultrasonic vocalizations. And then on the other hand, if we um, express a protein in these cells to silence them, to prevent them um, from releasing neurotransmitters, to communicate with downstream cells, 
Um, so if we silence these cells and then put that male mouse in a, a, you know, a chamber with a female, um, he'll continue courting the female, following her, sniffing her, chasing her, but he does it silently. He no longer can produce these ultrasonic vocalizations. Um, so, so that was those two observations were really kind of the linchpin observations in my postdoctoral work that we'd really identified a, a completely essential part of the neural circuit. And I, so in terms of, um, you know, where we want to go from there, I think, I think, you know, the questions are in some ways fairly obvious. Um, so one major line of research in my lab is going to be to understand really how specific versus how generalized are these cells. So are these cells really specific to the production of courtship vocalizations? Are they more general than that? Do they control the production of all ultrasonic vocalizations? Or to get even bigger yet, do they control the production of all types of vocalizations? Um, so for example, mice uh, squeak, right? That's the other vocalization that people think of typically when they think of a mouse. Um, I suspect that these cells are really important for ultrasonic vocalizations and that other cells um, underlie the production of other kind of acoustic categories of vocalization, but it, it remains to be tested. So that's one major question, how specific versus generalized are these cells? Um, a second question um, is really um, what lies upstream of these cells? Vocalizations aren't produced in a vacuum. Uh, animals vocalize in very particular social contexts, so they're obviously um, paying attention to what's happening around them. Uh, integrating, interpreting uh, sensory and social cues, and in addition, you know, throw in there that animal's own level of social motivation at a particular moment, and all of those things um, are being sort of integrated and considered, um, and that information has to have access to this circuit. And so basically, the second line of, of research that um, will be happening in my lab is to really understand um, what are the upstream inputs to these cells, and how are they actually triggering and or suppressing um, the vocalization circuit within the midbrain um, to enable the animal to produce vocalizations in a socially appropriate manner. Um, and then the third line of questioning is really to go downstream from these cells. Um, we know that these cells, there, there are many steps back from the muscles. So there are motor neurons that pr provide direct input to the muscles. There are premotor neurons that provide input to the motor neurons. And so these neurons in the midbrain are like pre-premotor neurons. Um, so there's a lot of stuff downstream. And again, it's kind of the same thing. Many structures, many parts of the brainstem have been implicated in vocal control, um, but it remains pretty much unknown exactly which populations of cells are really the critical ones. And so to dive into that question, um, we're basically going to consider these neurons in the midbrain and, and to try to understand um, whether they, they form a single homogenous output channel or alternatively, whether they form multiple uh, output channels that, that differ from one another, both in terms of their functional contributions to vocalization and, and also in terms of their uh, projections to downstream structures, what, you know, who they're recruiting to contribute to different parts of the vocalization. Feel like I've talked maybe longer <laughs> than you'd intended, but that's a big overview of, of kind of where we're headed in the lab. Um, yeah, it, it, and that's that's like obviously you know like the, the kind of big picture, decade long plan for for where my research is headed. Yeah, like no, that was completely great, and I think one thing that really stood out was like the stream analogy, which is like there's like a continuous process of like neurons activity that goes down to like even our neural networks all the way down to like just motor functions, right? So I thought that was a great, great analogy. And I think that kind of leads to my next question, which is, 
So why why did you choose the midbrain to actually like study? Um, was it because it was at the top of the stream, like you said, or was there anything else that interested you about that specific brain part? Yeah, we decided to focus on the midbrain in, in no small part due to this wealth of information we had about the role of that structure um, from prior studies. So as I alluded to earlier, it wasn't understood exactly which cells in the midbrain um, were important for vocalization, but there, there was a, a wealth of information just generally speaking about the role of the midbrain. So prior to my work, um, it was known basically in any species, uh, let's say vertebrate species that had been tested, um, the, this part of the midbrain is absolutely, absolutely essential for the production of vocalization. So if an animal has a lesion or damage to this part of the brain, they can't produce their vocalizations. Um, so basically against that backdrop, we figured this part of the brain is, is very likely to be something that's um, relatively motor related and, and really essential for the production of the behavior per se. Um, and then things that lie upstream of it are probably more related to, uh, you know, helping the animal um, detect and interpret and integrate sensory cues and context and motivation and, and you know, basically triggering the structure. Um, and that, you know, that hypothesis, as far as we have seen, has turned out to be absolutely spot on, but also was, you know, kind of standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing. Like there was a lot of prior work that would suggest that this part of the brain was going to be a really critical structure for vocalization. Yeah. Um, I think my next question would be kind of like what you've observed in the lab. So you said that uh, with like specific altercations, you could actually limit the or even like stop the vocalization of ultrasonic um, vocalizations, basically, right? So mm -hmm. do you know what the effects were, like, mentally, psychologically, like, in that process where the mice couldn't translate anything? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, I mean, let me back up a step and just say, going into those experiments, uh, it was totally possible that this part of the midbrain could play a more generalized role, not just in vocalization, but perhaps um, you know, in the case of courtship, sexual motivation. So we weren't sure when we did those experiments if we were gonna just completely knock out vocalization and courtship behavior or have more selective effects. Um, and as it turned out, we had really selective effects on vocalization and the male mice still continued to court the females other than, you know, the fact that they weren't producing these USBs as they did that. In terms of what the mouse thought about that, um, it's a really fascinating question. Um, and, it, and it's really an active area of research. Um, Basically, you know, I, I think the question you're getting at is, are the mice aware that they're vocalizing? Are they paying attention to it? And are they kind of modulating, you know, you know, using auditory feedback and in some way, yeah, using that to shape. What I can say is that um, mice, they, they definitely don't learn these vocalizations. And so they, these are innate vocalizations, which, by the way, is, you know, true of most vocalizations produced by animals throughout the animal kingdom. Um, in terms of how carefully are they tuning into their own vocalizations, um, like I said, fascinating question and, and totally open. Um, a lot of the studies out there have, if anything, indicated that they're not relying on kind of moment to moment auditory feedback. Um, and in fact, mice that are, are deafened um, appear to produce completely normal vocalizations. So as far as we know, they're not really tuned into their vocalizations. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, it's hard to to totally get inside the mind of the mouse, right? And and you know, know if that had any. Yeah, I mean, 
to some extent, it's, it's hard to detect something if you're not measuring it. And it's possible we weren't, you know, like maybe we weren't measuring things in just the right way to see some kind of an effect like that. But I like that question. Yeah, thank you. So without uh, like ultrasonic vocalization, I think that's what it's called, right? Um, yeah. Were they actually um, less successful than mice who were actually able to vocalize that? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Whether mice that can't produce USVs, male mice in particular, are less successful in their courtship efforts. Um, we took a stab at that question in our paper, um, and and the way we did that was to uh, put the mice in a an assay called a three chambered preference test. So in this assay, there are two side chambers. And there was a, ma a male mouse in either of those chambers and they're, they're semi-restrained. We kind of had them under a cage insert so they can't get out of that side chamber. And then, so we have a female who can just freely roam. She can go in the side chambers and interact with either male mouse or she can hang in the middle and interact with nobody in particular. And so for that experiment, we had one male mouse that was artificially muted so he could not produce ultrasonic vocalizations and then an intact male that could. And what we saw was that on average, females um, did prefer the male that could produce USBs, and that effect tended to depend on how much the male was vocalizing. So if you consider cases in which the intact male just happened not to vocalize a lot, there was, there was kind of like a split preference. So the female was equally likely to prefer either of those males, but then in cases where the intact male vocalized at a high rate, the female was more likely to prefer that male. Um, yeah, so that's that's something um, I, I plan to look into that question in more detail because I think the piece of information that you really want to know is if you were to track the long-term social dynamics and interactions of that mouse, the the actual, you know, uh, courtship success. What you, what you want to know is not does the female spend more time on this side or that side, but who does the female actually mate with. Um, so I have some ideas down the road to, to test that in a more naturalistic way by by tracking you know, a female's choice, uh, but, you know, over a long period of time where she can choose, you know, who she wants to spend time with and ultimately who she mates with. Yeah. So I, th I think it'll probably turn out that the USBs are important. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is that I don't really know of any, it's hard to think of a scenario where an animal produces a vocalization that serves no purpose, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I can't really think of an example of that. Um, I think what we can conclude is that certainly, you know, worst case scenario, the USBs can't hurt the mouse's chances of courtship. Otherwise, there, there's no way that they would keep doing this, engaging in this behavior, right? I suspect, I mean, I think the most common sense idea is yes, they probably do promote courtship either by conveying that male's level of motivation or perhaps in um, promoting receptivity in the female, but it remains to be seen. Yeah. yeah. Um, how does this, um, how, how do you think this research is applicable back to humans, our interactions, and other animals as well? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways that I think this research is applicable to humans. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting question, right, because I'm studying vocalization in a mouse, and they don't learn their vocalizations. It's not speech. They don't have grammar. They don't have vocabulary. They don't have syntax, as far as anyone can tell. Um, so I, I want to be really clear about that. And I think the two ways that this research um, can, can tell us something about humans, um, one, if we consider the, the parts of the brain that provide input to the vocalization circuit in the midbrain, um, and if you zoom out a bit from even vocalization, there's just this general question of how do we as humans integrate the behavioral context 
and especially the social context in which we're in, um, in order to select appropriate social behaviors at appropriate moments. Um, so I think our work in understanding how the, the structures and neurons that light upstream of the PAG um, encode social cues and motivation and, and trigger the, the vocalization in appropriate moments can absolutely shed light on that question, just in terms of generally understanding um, how social behaviors are, are produced in a socially appropriate manner. Um, and, you know, by the way, that, that particular ability is impaired in a number of neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, so that's one way in which I think our, our work can shed light on, on humans. Um, the, second, the second way I think it, it could shed light um, is, is really kind of in the opposite direction, going into the stuff that lies downstream of the midbrain. Um, so as I said, it's, it's kind of a, a big mess of, of structures and neurons um, in the brainstem. And although there are some areas that have been identified that seem to be important for vocal control, it still remains largely unknown exactly which neurons contribute to vocalization and how. Um, and the point I would like to make is that whether your vocalization is a mouse USB that's being controlled um, at the level of the midbrain, or whether it's um, human speech, which is being controlled at the level of cortex, um, both of those uh, structures, cortex and the PAG, the midbrain, um, converge onto the same premotor networks within the brainstem. So I think that if we can use the mouse um, as, as a case to understand uh, how, which and how uh, different populations of premotor neurons contribute to the nitty gritty of the production of vocalization, um, I think it's, it's quite likely that those same neurons, we're gonna see these kind of repeated motifs, like these same neurons are gonna be used in similar ways across vertebrates producing lots of different types of vocalizations. So again, um, going back to like my, I guess, like your publications and all that, I know that from my readings, your lab did a lot of research on zebra finches, songbirds, and eventually mice at Cornell. Um, or I know you guys have done um, experiments with mice already, but do you remember any other animals that you worked with? And why did you um, choose these certain animals for the topics that you were studying? Yeah, I've worked with a lot of different animals. I've kind of, at every stage of my career, I've switched so far. <laughs> Just like to mix it up, I suppose. So um, when I was an undergraduate, I worked with lizards. Um, we were studying uh, the lizard neuromuscular junction, and so we, we would dissect out the neuromuscular junction, and then we were doing calcium imaging, labeling different types of acetylcholine receptors. There were some record, electrophysiological recordings and pharmacology, um, that sort of stuff. Um, there, I mean, it was really cool work. Again, I, I mean, I've always really been interested in motor control. So I think even at that early stage, I, I knew that I liked motor control. Um, but, you know, in some, I, I think in some ways, like where you start, I don't know, maybe some people are more deliberate than this, but it's just sort of like what's available and what you see that catches your eye. Um, so I went to a small liberal arts college. I went to Grinnell College in Iowa. Um, at the time, there, there wasn't technically a neuroscience major, but there was like, you know, a handful of labs that did neuroscience. And so of, of the labs, that was the one to me that was the most interesting. Um, so, so I started with lizards and um, it was motor control, but in this really reduced and dissected prep, which it, it became clear to me pretty quickly. I didn't wanna, I, I cared about, I, I wanna study behavior. And so taking it back into an intact animal where there is behavior, um, and in particular social behavior was really, you know, where I headed after that. Um, my next step, like, as I, as I said before, was in some ways a little bit random. I, I read a class, I read a paper in a class, 
And I just thought, this is, this is awesome. I'm doing that. I mean, I was so psyched about uh, song learning in birds after I read that paper. When I applied to graduate school, I only applied to programs that had a really strong songbird lab at, in their program. Like I just was set. I knew for sure that's what I was going to do. Um, and in some ways after my PhD, um, you know, in, in terms of studying neural circuits for singing and song learning, the lab that I did my PhD in was one of the best labs out there. Still is, I, I'd say right at the top of the labs out there. And so it was difficult to me, for me to figure out like which group would I go to where I, I would be, you know, you know, kind of, you always wanna, if you're gonna stay in the, really the same area from, you know, from your PhD to your postdoc, I feel like you, you wanna, you know, there's gotta be a different spin on it or maybe the lab just has some set of techniques that weren't available to you before. And I just didn't feel like that really existed. I felt like I was in the lab that had everything going on. So I decided to just kind of reinvent myself and just try something totally different. Um, and so I, I thought about the things that I liked and the things I didn't like about my PhD work. And, and the one thing I, that was, is tricky and it was tricky at the time and it is still tricky now working with songbirds is just the lack of genetic tools compared to other model organisms. Um, so I thought a lot about it and I, I just thought it might be cool to try an invertebrate system with a lot of genetic tools and the fruit fly was one of those, right? Um, I had also, I'd taken a summer class at Cold Spring Harbor uh, about Drosophila and I, I just liked the class a lot. I thought they were just cool, neat little animals, uh, really enjoyed working with them and, and that was it. I tend to be kind of impulsive in my decision making. I just sort of like, all right, I like that, I'm doing that, right? It, it was, I mean, it, in some ways it was as simple as that. Um, and then in terms of, um, my second postdoc, um, yeah, I mean, I kind of did the same thing. It was a similar process. I, I just tried to think about what did I like most for my PhD? What did I like most for my first postdoc? And what things didn't I like? And I knew I wanted to get back into social behavior and vocalization. I didn't want to do it in a bird. I, I really loved having this arsenal of genetic tools at my, um, at my fingertips. And it seemed to me then like the obvious choice was to, to study vocal control in the mouse. And I also just felt like there was this huge gap in our knowledge and really a, a, just a low hanging opportunity to study this in a mouse because, you know, at the time, uh, no one had done it. It was just sitting there waiting for somebody to, to tackle. Um, so that, that's basically the story of how I ended up in, in like four different <laughs> animals at each stage of my career. But I do intend to stay with mice, by the way. I don't, I don't anticipate changing like yet again. I think, I think at this point I'm pretty much set on working with mice. Yeah. I just love that whole timeline of just stories though, because like, like I love how you just found your passion by just doing like impulsive, but yet organized, like thought out actions. And you just find the things you love. That was like, I just thought that was just amazing to me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, I usually ask professors to delve deeper into the most cited or published work. It's a little segment that I have with my episodes of professors. And according to Google Scholar with almost 300 citations, it was rapid st uh, spine stabilization and synaptic <laughs> yeah. enhancement at the onset of behavioral learning. Um, so looking into that study, I personally did some developmental neuroscience of myself. Um, and looking at it, I learned about plasticity and all these different type of topics. But um, I never really delved into like, um, how do you say it, like uh, the nervous system and like how that's affected, um, how behavioral learning is also like the effects that it has through like 
um, synaptic strengthening and all that, right? So yeah. before we delve deeper into the topic, do you want to give like a quick overview to the audience about what that study was about? Yeah. Yeah, I can give an overview of that study. And it's funny because it feels like so long ago. I hope I remember it correctly. You know, it's like one of those things when you're doing work, it feels like this is so, it's so close to you. Like I could never forget these details. And then like 10 years go by, you switch animal models. You're, you know what I mean? And you're like, oh God, what did we do again? So that study, um, as... As I mentioned, um, I, I was working in collaboration with a postdoc in my PhD lab at the time. I mean, in fact, he's, uh, his name's Dr. Todd Roberts. He is the person who trained me as a graduate student. Um, and, and we had developed, I mean, kind of the technical goal of the work was to develop two-photon imaging and apply it to the bird. Um, and, and, but the real question we are after is, what in the world is happening in the brain of a juvenile zebra finch um, as it's hearing its tutor for the first time, for the first time. and I'll, I'll unpack this in a second, um, and, and starting to learn its song. So, so things that you need to know about um, the, the behavior of a songbird, um, its, it's vocal learning is, is really similar in, in many cool ways to how humans learn speech um, as infants. So uh, in, the, in zebra finches, which is the species that we worked with, um, only the males uh, produce learned songs. So a juvenile male, um, basically hears the song of an adult tutor, um, which is typically its father, but in the case of an experiment, it doesn't have to be, but in, in you know, the natural situation is typically its father. Um, and there is a, a period of sensory learning where the juvenile bird um, listens to and begins forming an auditory memory of the, um, of the tutor's song. And then that juvenile bird begins um, producing its own song and it, it relies on um, hearing itself, so using auditory feedback from its own vocalization to iteratively shape and improve its own song. Um, and then you can see it over the course of development um, approaching closer and closer to, to being a good match to the tutor song that um, it was listening to throughout development. Um, and then finally, around the age of um, sexual maturation, um, the birds undergo a period called crystallization where um, the song really stabilizes. And so zebra finch is this process, one of the reasons the species is really great to work with to study vocal learning is that their songs are really stereotyped. So they produce these series of syllables and then the adult bird, it's the same sequence of syllables every single time. So A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And so it's really easy, you, you, you know, present a juvenile bird with a tutor and you can, you can really readily assess the quality of copying um, because you know exactly what you're looking for um, in terms of what it should be producing. Um, so what we're really going after in that study is when you have this, this juvenile bird that's never heard a tutor song before, and as it's hearing that song for the first time and starting to form that um, auditory memory, um, what is happening? What's the neural substrate of that? And we are looking in particular in a part of the brain called HVC. Um, HVC is, um, you know, bird brains are different from human brains, so it's, there's no, uh, you know, perfectly similar structure in the human brain. But let's say for our purposes, it's, it's a kind of a specialized song motor cortex, premotor cortex, something like that. Um, and it's, it's a part of the brain that's been implicated in both singing and song learning. Um, and yeah, like in terms of, of which auditory inputs, basically how, this auditory information that, that is the, the young bird listening to its tutor, how is that accessing the motor circuits, the sensory motor circuits that drive singing and song learning? So, so what is the entry point for that information? 
And so really, you know, kind of the more specific question of this study was um, asking whether there's um, kind of any, any structural correlates of, of tutor song um, learning of that auditory memory formation when you look in this part of the brain that's known to be um, essential for singing. Yeah, so I personally thought this study again was very interesting because like I had so many questions like um, how does the like juvenile like bird um, after listening to it like how does it make its own like I know that they keep the same pattern as you said like I think it was like A, B, C, and D, A, B, C, and D but as I researched more independently, I also noticed that most of them have like independent patterns almost. Like they still have like their, I think, unique song, right? Um, please correct me if I'm wrong. Was <laughs> uh, that right? No, no. They, so in zebra finches, they do tend to do a fairly good copy of the Tudor song, but you're right. It's not identical. And, and there are a lot of ideas about, um, you know, why that might be. And, and I suspect the answer is that it's, it's actually adaptive. So, um, you know, a bird needs to distinguish itself from another bird, right? And, and so it makes some sense then that the bird, um, it wants to copy its tutor song. I mean, this bird has made it, it's reproduced. This is a tried and true song. Like this song worked well, that, that bird was successful in terms of its courtship. Um, but, but then it, you know, puts its own little spin on things. So, so if you look at the fine acoustic structure of the syllables, there absolutely are differences. So that, that juvenile bird, as it grows up and produces its own song, it, it too produces a highly stereotyped song, but it's a little bit different in the details from the, the father's song. You're, you're absolutely right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think this was in two, 2012 or no 2010 something like that it was from duke yeah, university like yeah 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 so um over the years as you've kind of like researched more in the subject and also you had more experience after the publication do you think any of your findings you might change or do you think you might want to look into maybe if you had the chance um there were a ton of um really interesting follow-up directions from that study and I didn't, I, I guess what I would say is I didn't have to wonder about the answers to those questions or look into them because the postdoc I was working with, Dr. Todd Roberts, that's the focus of his lab. Like he is just knocking it out of the park in terms of, of asking these questions. Um, he's done a, a ton of follow-up work and continues to follow up um, to really understand the neural substrate of that auditory memory that the tutor forms and to understand. Um, I mean, so, so one obvious follow-up question was, um, Okay, so we, let me, I can give a little bit of, of detail about the findings. So when we went into this story, we thought, okay, this juvenile bird, it hasn't heard any tutor song yet. So the inputs onto these HBC neurons important for singing, they're going to be really plastic and dynamic. And then it's going to hear this tutor song and everything's going to stabilize. It's going to just like sink into place. And, and then it's going to start learning and, and producing its own song. And it was actually the complete opposite. Um, they were fairly stable to start with. And again, I hope I'm not getting this backwards because it's been a few years since I've you know, done this work. Um, so they started out fairly stable and then the, hearing the tutor sound just kicked off this period of um, synaptic turnover. So spines were changing uh, shape and they were being gained and lost, like the rates of turnover increased following tutoring. So it went from a stable to a dynamic state, which was completely the opposite of what we'd expected. Um, 
And so we're looking at from the postsynaptic side, we're looking at HVC neurons and the dendritic spines in those cells, but what are the presynaptic inputs that are actually driving that change? And so um, Todd Roberts has done a lot of follow-up work um, looking at um, the role of one auditory input to HVC. It's this part of the um, song, Songbird auditory uh, uh, system called NIF, which doesn't mean anything to anyone who doesn't work with songbirds. But um, the yeah, long story short is that it appears to be a really, really important input in terms of conveying um, tutor song information uh, to HVC um, and, and, and really kicking off that um, stabilization, turnover, and then subsequent stabilization. And what, what Todd has actually seen is that, um, and I don't remember when this re more recent work came out, it's, it, it was, it's not as recent as like last year, but it's definitely not 10 years old. Um, in a follow-up study, he um, basically used channel rhodopsin to artificially uh, manipulate the activity of NIF neurons. So these auditory neurons that provide input to HBC, he's controlling their activity very precisely using pulses of light and um, by driving particular patterns, temporal patterns of input to HVC through this input, he could actually shape the temporal dynamics of the song that the, two, that the um, juvenile bird learned. So, so, so one idea, I mean, of course, there are lots of details still to be worked out, but, but one, I mean, that's to me, like was the most interesting follow-up question. Um, and, and he's uncovered basically this finding that it's, it seems like the, the, the input from NIF is really conveying timing information about the tutor song that shapes a subsequent, you know, song learning, kicks it all off, basically. Right. Well, that's a really good follow-up question. Like, I didn't really know about NIF and all that, so kind of listening to there's, that. There's no reason you should. I mean, it's like this, I mean, <laughs> it's like this weirdly named songbird auditory area. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess my final question for that study would be, um, I know that you said the spinal like area like changes also due to like development and also after listening to um, like the songs as during the juvenile period, um, the sensitive period. So I wonder if that also applies to humans because um, again, when I was studying developmental neuroscience, like the only thing I heard about was like the transformations in the brain, uh, brain like when we learn what happens and never really learned about like the neural circuits and all that like or not neural circuits like spinal stuff so do you think that also applies to humans yeah i think i mean i think as is the case if you try to translate a study in an animal to, you know model to a human the, the details are likely to be different um like you know for example the most obvious thing is the brain regions involved or they're not going to be the same necessarily, especially when you're talking about a bird versus a human. But I suspect that the, the overall sequence of events is probably pretty similar. You probably have, uh, you know, an infant who um, is, you know, kind of gaining the ability to hear and appreciate the vocalizations of, of its caretakers. And I, I would assume that once, you know, it, the infant starts really attending to and processing that auditory information, that just kicks off a period of neuroplasticity um, in the cortical areas um, that are important for speech learning. Yeah, I absolutely think, I mean, and again, the details are likely to be a little bit different, but I think that overall sequence of events is, is quite likely to be, to be true. Yeah. 
Uh, I had a few people in my audience who are actually very interested in this as well. So they also were interested in like motor functions, learning about animals. And one thing they asked was like, how do you actually analyze like neural circuits of the brain? So I know there's calcium imaging uh, in, in vivo, sorry. Um, there's also like viral genetics and stuff like that. Um, so do you think you could go over some major um, major aspects of like like analyzing like the animal um any like different the, methods. the tools that yeah, we the use. methods and tools yeah. yeah yeah sure yeah um so we 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 tend to use similar sets of methods um in in many different types of experiments um, and and the general sequence of events is like you want to understand how a given uh set of neurons, um, it's often defined by the fact that they're active during behavior, that they express a given genetic marker, or that they project to a given brain area of interest. You want to understand how this defined population of neurons contributes to a given behavior. So, so the general sequence of events is you want to monitor the activity of those neurons during that behavior to see you know, if it is in fact related to that behavior and if so, how. Um, and then you want to manipulate the activity of those neurons and see whether um, you, you perturb or alter the behavior in any way. Um, so in terms of monitoring the behavior, um, there are a lot of different tools out there, but the tool that my lab, um, that I've used in the past and that I plan to use in my own lab is calcium imaging, as you alluded to. Um, and there are a couple different flavors of calcium imaging that are really amenable, um, or not necessarily straightforward, but more amenable to being applied in, in a behaving freely moving animal. Um, so one method that um, we use is fiber photometry. So um, it basically, um, you need to use a virus. Step one is you use a virus to express a calcium indicator in your population of cells. Um, and so the calcium is, it's not a perfect proxy for neural activity, but it's, it's nonetheless a proxy for neural activity. So you're basically reading out the changes in calcium, intracellular calcium levels in your population of neurons as a, a proxy for the level, overall level of neural activity. Um, in fiber photometry, you're implanting an optical lens just over that population of cells that expresses the calcium indicator. And a really important point is that you're measuring, again, at the population level. So you're not looking at what individual neurons are doing. You're just considering you're getting an average signal from that group of cells. And so that method tends to work best, um, I think, as you can imagine, in cells that are doing something kind of similar to one another. So if they tend to go up at the same time and go down at the same time and they tend to behave similarly, fiber photometry is a great method. It's not a good method if you have a heterogeneous group of cells doing different things at different times um, because everything's just going to be averaged out in a wash. Um, and so to get single cell re resolution, um, another method that I'm planning to develop in my own lab is, is called miniscope imaging. Uh, it's, it's basically a method where um, the animal wears a, a head-mounted uh, microscope. Um, so it's um, a single photon microscope. Uh, and so, so the, the resolution isn't quite as good as what you get with two photon microscopy, but it's, it's pretty good nonetheless. Um, and so there's usually a, a base plate that's on the animal's head at all times. And then right before the experiment, um, you snap in place this little miniaturized microscope. Um, and, and those can be attached in a variety of ways. The ones that I've used in the past have been held by ma magnets um, or perhaps a, a small screw. So you basically put this miniaturized microscope on right before, um, and, and then the animal just goes about its behavior. 
And uh, same thing, you're, you're measuring um, calcium signals uh, from your neurons of interest, but in the case of miniscope imaging, you actually get a field of view. So you can see all of the, the little cells in your field of view. And there are some um, algorithms that you can use to determine basically what type of a signal is a single neuron versus two neurons close together, things like that. Um, so there's a little bit of trickery involved in figuring out uh, whether you're looking at one cell or two cells sitting you know, very close to one another, for example. Um, uh, and that's obviously a little bit more difficult to implement than the fiber photometry because there's an entire <laughs> microscope involved. Um, but, but the great thing is you, you can achieve single cell resolution um, in a freely behaving animal. And so for the work that we're doing, this is absolutely essential because we're, we're trying to look at vocalizations produced in social contexts, And it's really hard to get at that if the animal isn't allowed to just engage with its um, environment and social partners at will. Um, in terms of uh, manipulating neural activity, um, there are a couple of things in our toolkit that we typically use. Um, the first is um, optogenetic manipulations of neural activity. So again, the starting point is a virus and you express a protein in a cell. Um, these are light-gated proteins that either um, uh, increase or decrease the activity of neurons. And so um, you have to implant an optical fiber above the, the population of cells to deliver light directly to the neurons. But in that same way, um, you can manipulate the activity of those cells as the animal's freely behaving. Um, and then the final method that we use in terms of in vivo manipulations is uh, called chemogenetics. Um, so this method is, is a little bit less invasive than optogenetics. Um, step one is still a viral injection. You need to express um, an exogenous receptor. It's a designer receptor um, that doesn't have a natural ligand um, within the mouse's brain. Um, and, then, and then right before you, you wanna have your animal engage in behavior, you basically uh, give the animal uh, an IP injection of, of a designer drug. And that designer drug will bind to that designer receptor that's expressed by your neurons. And there are different flavors of these things to either um, increase or decrease neural activity. Um, but the, the time resolution isn't, isn't as nice as what you get with um, optogenetics where you can precisely deliver light pulses. So the chemogenetic uh, manipulations are better suited to things where you want to um, either increase or decrease neural activity kind of just chronically over a longer period of like a few hours, for example. Yeah, and it's really fascinating to see so many different methods that you could just use um, for like different like scenarios and situations. Yeah. Um, yeah. So before I go uh, to like more general topics, do you think there's other experiences that you had in relation to like your specific work that you feel you feel that I failed to mention? Um, no, I, I mean, I think we've like we've basically covered like, yeah, the trajectory of the work that I've done. I, there, no, no, there's nothing that I was like, you know, burning to talk about that we didn't already talk about. So, yeah. So, um, you could, you could relate this to your work or you could just keep it general, but how do you think the neuroscience field is developing currently? Um, where does its future potential lie in your opinion? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but I think one thing that I've really seen um, develop in the last five years especially is a proliferation of methods that allow a researcher to amass a huge amount of data. So 
um, methods to either image or record from many, 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 many neurons, um, in some cases at in multiple parts of the brain at the same time. Um, and in some ways, I feel like these methods are the ability to get these large amounts of data is developing a little faster than our ability to know what to do with those large amounts of data. So you see, I don't mean to be critical of these methods because they're incredible, they're amazing, and surely getting large amounts of data is not a bad thing, right? Of course it's a good thing. Um, but in terms of keeping up with the large amounts of data um, with, with actual hypotheses and, and questions <laughs> um, and, and you know, ideas about what to do with the data, um, there, there seems to be you know, sometimes a little bit of a disconnect there. And I think, and yeah, I mean, I think, to me kind of this isn't this isn't exactly saying answering your question where things are headed but sort of like what you know where the field has is going and, and what kind of you know big issues are we're facing um there there's this older tradition of um recording or imaging from individual neurons right one cell at a time or a few cells at a time as an animal's engaged in the behavior and now we have these newer methods where we can um record or image from multiple sites within the brain or multiple neurons or, you know, like huge populations of neurons from multiple sites. And so understanding how to connect those different levels of information um, is, some, is something that I think, obviously, it's a huge challenge. There's no right answer to it. Um, but it's, it's, I think that's one of the, the big challenges that neuroscience is facing right now. Like, how do we reconcile these different levels of information? And how do we, how do we, um, yeah, what do we do with all this information we're getting about the brain and in terms of actually understanding how brains work? It's, it's a huge challenge. Yeah, like personally, I thought that was really funny because I remember working in a lab and they had like literal thousands of rows of data, but like they couldn't organize it all. So like I had to do all of them um, and actually like translate what each of them meant. So that was just a nightmare. But yeah, that, I thought that was really funny, and I, and I definitely empathize with you on that point. Um, so these are my final questions, because I know uh, I don't really want to take up too much of your time. So why did you decide to uh, transition your lab to Cornell and, you know, start your work there? And why do you think your work um, is interesting to, like, look into to start a career in? Okay, uh, so just to be really clear, I did not have my own lab prior to Cornell. I was a postdoc, so I was it wasn't transitioning anything. I was just starting from scratch. Um, uh, I mean, one really honest answer is because it's where I was offered a job, right? I mean, um, I, I had I did have a couple of job offers, so it wasn't that I had no choice. But even there, I mean, it's like the job market. It's it's so tough. Um, so to have you know an offer or a couple of offers, I felt incredibly fortunate. Um, the reason I, I chose Cornell, um, one was the people for me, like, I, I mean, I, I love what I do, but I've got to like the people that I'm gonna work with every day. Um, that's to me almost equally as important as the actual topic or the thing that I'm doing at work. Um, so the people there are great. Um, they're, they're just like a really, um, kind of the, the, the the lifestyle better suits me than a lot of places that I've seen or been. Um, people work really hard. Um, they're awesome at what they do. And then they also are humans with lives, you know, like it's not just about this, you know, 
productivity at work. Like it's, it, you know, people are, I mean, I'm not trying to, people are really productive and they're amazing. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's sort of common sense that that is um, your, your ability to, to be productive and creative and effective at work is sort of fueled by your time off, um, by having a break, by having other things that you care about and value it just, you know, and, and so being around people that, that held those um, same values was really important to me. And I was really fortunate to, to you know, get an offer, um, you know, from, from a place where that was the case. Um, and then in terms of science, you know, scientifically, why did I want to go there? Um, there is just this long tradition of, of researchers across many different fields and departments at Cornell studying um, both vocal communication and just social communication in many different types of animals. Uh, it sort of has this rich history of people studying animal communication. Um, and that was hugely attractive to me uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, I do study neural circuits, but I study neural circuits for communication. And, and to me, you know, it's always, you know, the, the, the goal is to always get back to the behavior. Um, and yeah, finding a department where, where the behavior per se was really valued and, and of interest to people. Um, and not just, you know, a means to understand how the nervous system works, but you know, like the two things are obviously tightly interlinked, right? And, and so having that back and forth um, as part of the fabric of, of the, um, you know, group of people and the, the research that I'm, you know, surrounded by was, was um, just, you know, too good to pass up. Do you have any last messages for our audience, something that you want us to like depart with and kind of think about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to, there's, there's been a lot of crazy stuff happening. It's, you know, I feel like my, my last words or message are a little, like, I don't know, heavier <laughs> than they might normally be. Um, I, I mean, I guess I would just say, um, you know, I, I am, um, completely just disgusted and, and just disgusted by, by the um, uh, events uh, of the last few weeks. Um, uh, I'm not, I mean, of course, prior, prior to, you know, George Floyd and, and all of these other atrocities was COVID. So there's this already very like crazy, stressed out, horrible backdrop to the situation. Um, so you know, what I, I want to just say is um, to, to those in the scientific community that have been affected by COVID, um, you know, just, just this too shall pass. Um, it, it's causing delays and stress, but I think we're all in it together. And I, and I hope, you know, that that should be the message that we're conveying. It's okay not to be productive every second of the day. It's okay to take time for yourself. And the absolute most important thing you should be doing right now is, is taking care of yourself and staying healthy. Um, and um, with regard to um, the the you know uh, events and and their impact on um, the, the the black community and, and people of color, um, I mean I think this is especially you know it's I don't know if you're you are on Twitter right I mean it's it's just been people people talking about this nonstop um, and I, I think a lot of people are struggling right now um, and. And again, the message, you know, from, from all departments and institutions should be one of support, um, of solidarity with, with black researchers, with people of color. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've, we've just got to do, we've got to do more. Um, I, I think, you know, 
it can't just be single labs. It, it's got to, to make any change, these, these things have to come on a bigger scale. Um, and I, all I can say is I, I sincerely hope that, you know, these, these recent events, you know, hopefully some good can come out of them in terms of um, people actually mobilizing and making real and, and lasting change. Um, but I just, yeah, same thing there. Um, people, you know, I need to take care of themselves and, um, yeah. And I hope, I just, I just hope that, that, you know, that 2020 has been a real crap year, right? Like I just, I just hope, <laughs> yeah, I just, I just hope there is a, a, you know, a brighter, a brighter spot. This is probably isn't even a good message to end on it. So it's just a, it's like a bummer, right? It's a dark, sad message. Um, but I hope, you know, for me, you know, there's, there's hope too that, that we can move forward from these things and, and, you know, do that together as a community, you know, support one another and learn. <laughs> a special thank you to Professor Cheetah for taking your time out of quarantine for this episode. If you want to check out her work, visit psychology.cornell.edu slash Thank you for your time, and I hope after this episode, your mind is mindful.